the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Conservative documentarian and excellent documentarian, Michael Pack has a long record of extraordinarily impressive films. That's why President Trump asked him to lead the U.S. Agency for Global Media. After a long political battle, he was confirmed, and he went to the agency, and he began to make long overdue changes to return it to its original mission. And as a result, there was great controversy. And the day that President Biden took office, indeed, the first official action on the personnel side He fired Michael Pack, which is his right, but he did it because Michael Pack was getting the job done. Not long thereafter, Amazon acted to cancel Michael Pack's film on Justice Clarence Thomas. This is an underreported story, but I asked Michael Pack to join me today to discuss it at length. Good morning, Michael. Welcome back to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Thank you. Good to be here, Hugh. Uh, Michael, I met you once at the offices of Hillsdale College, and but I followed your work for a long time. Let's begin from Mm. the baseline assumption that people don't know your work. Would you give Mm. them a a quick summary of your career and your films? Sure, I've been making documentaries for many decades. Uh, I founded my company Manifold Productions in 1977 and we've made over 15 films, uh, all nationally broadcast on public television, one on TLC. And they've been on a variety of subjects, history, culture, politics. We did two on founding fathers, one on George Washington, one on Alexander Hamilton with Richard Brookheiser. Uh, We recently did a film before the one you just mentioned on Admiral Rick Ever, who built the first nuclear submarine. Um, We've done ones on controversial subjects like Rodney King, which I think is more relevant now than when we did it, you know, 10 years after it was after it happened. So we've done uh, lots and lots of documentaries. You know, plus, I've served in government a few times. Uh, I was previously in international broadcasting under George H.W. Bush, and I was on the Council of the National Endowment for the Humanities under George W. Bush. And I served as senior vice president at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting in charge of television programming. So you've got this great resume, and I want people to understand we have these obscure agencies. Both Michael and I are veterans of NEH, National Endowment for the Humanities. I was its general counsel under acting director John Agresto and then under Lynn Cheney. These little tiny agencies don't have a lot of money, but they have an enormous amount of influence among tastemakers. Explain the U.S. Agency for Global Media, Michael, because people won't recognize it by that name. Uh, I think that's exactly right, Hugh. But it is very important. Uh, It is really an umbrella organization that has the five government international broadcasters within it. That's the Voice of America. Office of Cuba Broadcasting, the Radio Free Asia, Middle East Broadcasting Networks, um, and Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. And, and together, they reach an estimated audience weekly of 350 million people, a huge number. They broadcast in 70 languages all over the world. The budget is about 850 million a year, not a lot by government standards, but it still makes it one of the biggest media organizations in the world. And it's very powerful. And, and it has a a very important mission, I think more important now than ever before, which is why I did respond to the request that I run this agency. Its mission is to tell America's story to the world and promote American ideals like democracy and freedom. 
And we and those ideals are very much under attack, especially from China, but from North Korea and Iran and many of our adversaries. They are promoting their very different values and principles, and we need to defend our own. And that is the mission of this agency, and it is truly important. Now, uh, people of our age will remember the Cold War, and they will remember Radio Free Europe, and the important part it played in keeping hope alive behind the Iron Curtain. There is now a role for that sort of uh, an agency, especially in Asia, but also in other authoritarian and tyrannical parts of the world. So when you arrived there, first of all, you had been delayed a long time. Why was your confirmation delayed? I was, I, the White House asked me to serve in March of 2017, and I didn't really walk through the door of USAGM until three years and three months later. As you know, presidents are, have a four-year term, so three years and three months is a long delay. From the moment the White House asked me to serve in this position, the media launched an attack. I was going to turn into Trump TV. Uh, you know, I was going to politicize this wonderful agency. So the media, which had paid little attention to this agency for many decades, suddenly found it important. Um, and I, I think the key is something that you alluded to earlier, I think, Hugh, and that is that progressives, the left, recognize that media organizations are hugely important and they wanted to defend this one, whereas Republicans were willing to trade it off for anything else. They didn't consider it important. But the Democrats who wanted to stop me did, and they don't, do not feel that they should give up control of media and communications organizations. Now, I believe that Leader McConnell is the most effective Republican leader that the Republicans have had since, well, as long as I've been alive. But he had to make you a priority to finally get it done. Of course, judges matter more because they're lifetime mm -hmm. appointments, and he always put judges first. Did any Republican put a hold on you, or was it just a matter of the Chuck Schumer slow walk on all nominations? Well, you know, in, I'm, my position has to be confirmed by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And in the beginning, it was uh, chaired by Senator Corker, who was no friend of oh, President dear. Trump's. So he worked hand in glove with the, with the ranking member, Senator Menendez, to block my nomination. And after Corker left, Senator Menendez continued to do that. And it was really not until President Trump personally intervened that the log jam broke. I do not believe the president of the United States should intervene at a, this level of um, nomination, but he did. He called Senator McConnell. He spoke to the Republicans on the Hill. You know, he made several calls on my behalf. And without that, I think they would have delayed me way into the Biden administration. Yeah, you've just reminded me, Senator Corker did so much damage as a, uh, I don't use the term rhino, but he was just simply confused about what government is and how it's supposed to operate. And he, he turned the Constitution upside down on the joint powers agreement with Iran. So I'm not surprised he screwed up this as well. When you got there, Michael Pack, what did you do that caused such cries of anguish from <laughs> tenured bureaucrats? I could hear the screams in <laughs> Alexandria. Well, you know, my only goal was to return them to their core mission, which is to tell America's story and also to report the objective news in a balanced, fair way. That's not only their mission. It's the law. They're legally required to do that. But right away, they they fought. They fought against that. And they, the first thing I did is I wanted to get rid of the heads of the existing networks and then finally bring in my own, a very standard practice that was considered, oh, you know, bloodletting, even though there are 4,000 people in this agency, four of them, five of them were, you know, pushed out. And, you know, it was political right from the start. And then we tried to 
look at the programming in terms of balance and bias, and we tried to make sure that a period of long gross mismanagement was reversed. And all of that just had cries of, um, uh, of opposition. And they were supported very strongly by the media, by friends on the Hill, and they launched numerous uh, lawsuits against us. Yeah, Michael, there is a club of media elites, just like there's a club for growth, there's a club of media elites. Mm -hmm. And it is both government and non-government. And so you've got the Manhattan Beltway media elites, and then you have the NEH, the NEA, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, NPR, and this agency that you took over. And if we did a Venn diagram of where they overlap and how people move between them, it really is an organism. And you were attacking one part of that organism that they don't want to give up. The way that Bill Bennett did in the first term of Ronald Reagan. I think they were afraid of that. Were they right to be afraid of that? Well, I don't know. It depends. I mean, I was going to bring it back to its core mission. If that's horrible, then they should have been afraid. I think a good example of what you said, Hugh, is that one of my predecessors, I was really the first Senate-confirmed CEO, but he was an appointed CEO, Is John was John Lansing, and he left being CEO of USAGM to become president of NPR, you know, just indicating that same, how closely connected these organizations are. And not surprisingly, NPR was perhaps the most aggressive in doing negative stories about me. Yeah, NPR is one, actually seamless with the big major networks. People go back and forth all the time. I've worked inside of NBC with CNN. I've been on all, there's just a seam, a membrane that allows the left-wing point of view of elite media to flow back and forth between NPR, the CPB, and the other influencers. But we always thought that Voice of America and its allied agencies were immune from that. You discovered they were not. Well, that's right. And I, you know, I think because there was no actual Senate-confirmed CEO for a long time, there was gross mismanagement. We found this huge security failure, which I think is a story in itself, but I think maybe more interesting to your viewers are the examples of bias that we found. I mean, for example, the worst case perhaps was a video by the Urdu service, which is supposed to be targeting Pakistan, obviously. But this was really a repackaged Biden ad that appealed to the voters, especially in Michigan, the Muslims in Michigan, to flip the state for Biden. It had Ilan Omar, it had AOC, it had everybody appealing for people to vote. And it had Biden, you know, quoting the prophet Muhammad. And there was no, nothing on the other side. I mean, it was a flat out ad. And it, well, had, it, it was on. It reminds me of when Lynn Cheney arrived at the uh, NEH in 1985 or six, the Africans was coming out. And the Africans mm -hmm. was nothing but a 10 part diatribe against America. <laughs> and so she, she couldn't defund it, but she pulled the name off of it. And she got as much heat as you did but she had stronger allies and the president backed her up. The president left, you were hung out to dry. In fact, are you not the first person who was fired by the president? I, I, Politico reported my being fired as his first foreign policy move. I don't know. I mean, I was at, at 1220, I got a notice that if I didn't resign as of 2 p.m., I would be fired. So 1220, I mean, two, 12, 12, 20 minutes after noon, 20 minutes after the uh, swearing in, I was fired, essentially. So, yes, I, read that. I was either first, I'm either first or close to first. I and, want to ask if you got any, did you get anything done in that hour and 40 minutes between the receipt <laughs> of your notice? Of, did, did you do anything that we can remember from that hour and 40 minutes? 
I was at least able to write a farewell to the staff and what I felt and why I thought this was a big mistake by by then President Biden. So I don't know. I mean, right. and then he fired everybody I had appointed and brought back people who are under investigation for gross mismanagement. I mean, within a week, you know, everybody I had brought in was gone, including people with two year contracts with people who had been appointed by boards, all fired, all gone. And none of that got negative attention, unlike my own efforts to make any kind of reform. I'm not surprised because, again, we're talking about the blob. And this is the Manhattan Beltway media elite. And what you were taking over was a part of the blob. It's a little known part of the blob, but it's part of the blob. Now, Michael, I think in 2024, every Republican candidate is going to use your name in their stump speech. They're going to say, we're going to send Michael Pack back to finish the job. And they're going to, because it is actually a proxy for the culture war. And by culture war, I don't mean violence. I mean the argument about what America stands for, how it is represented to the world. And I think you are a proxy for that entire argument. So Michael Pack, will be, do you mind that role that's ahead for you? I, I do not mind. I, I was looking forward to another four years to try to fix this agency because I think it's important. I do think it is really, really hard. I mean, may, I have a, I know Lynn Cheney and I have a huge respect for her, but things have gotten so much worse than when she was at the NEH. Yeah. I mean, one thing I found really, Hugh, is how hard, why do these people fight back inside the Voice of America, for instance? Because what do they, who do they look up to? Who do they admire? They want to be like CNN. They want to be like the Washington Post. They, unlike the Washington Post, they're required to be objective, to be balanced, to reflect the views of all the American people. But when they think of good journalism, they think of the Washington Post and CNN. So my effort to make them more objective and balanced than CNN struck them as excessive, and it always will. It's so hard to change the culture. I am a columnist for The Washington Post, and I will credit The Post <laughs> at least with giving me a little plot of ground on which I get to write without fear or favor, uh, like I have liberals on this show, and I invite them to say whatever they want. But that is not the culture of the government agencies. And in fact, when I was at NEH, I was astonished by the bias. And it's not as bad as NEA. And it sounds like NEA isn't as bad as the U.S. Agency for Global Media. <laughs> and nobody's as bad as NPR. NPR is absolutely the worst, most biased government organ in America. And I hope someone can, it would really resonate with Americans if they defund it. Michael, now I want to talk about what happened to you since you left. Because we live in a democracy they won, they get to fire our people and start over. I have no objection to the use of authority to, to uh, fire you. I think it was improvident, but it's not unconstitutional. I am worried about what happened to Justice Thomas in, in his own words, mm. one of your most recent films. First, tell us about the film, then tell us what happened to it. Well, it's a two-hour documentary called, as you say, Created Equal, Justice Thomas in His Own Words. And it was in movie theaters uh, early in 2020 until they finally closed. And we did really well. We were in 110 theaters. We got many good reviews. It was broadcast nationally on PBS in May or June, I forget which, to, to, to again, uh, great reviews. And it was you know, very, you know, PBS loved it and they did well by it. And then we then we released it digitally in, in the fall. And I, I should say the film is really allows Justice Thomas to speak. I was privileged to have 30 hours to interview him over six months, and he told his entire life story. He looks directly at the camera, tells viewers what 
his life was like as he experienced it. And he's the only interview, along with a little bit of his wife, Jenny. So you hear his version of his life story, and viewers get to decide whether they like him, whether they agree with him. I mean, of course, there's archival footage and recreations and stills and many other things, but it's basically Clarence Thomas telling his story. And as I think the most important African-American alive today, it's worth hearing his story. So it was released digitally in the fall, and Amazon was one of the platforms it was released on, and it was offered in a, in a buy rent uh, button, plus you could buy DVDs, and then it went on Prime. So we were shocked on February 8th at the beginning of Black History Month when Amazon kicked it off. It was no longer on Prime. You could no longer buy or rent it. DVDs were technically being sold, but they were out of stock, and they were not asking for more from our distributor. So everyone was shocked. I mean, why would you deplatform, you know, cancel Clarence Thomas and Black History Month? Our Let me distributor ask, is, asked, is there a benign explanation, Michael, for what happened? I think there's. it could have been an oversight. It could have been anything. But so that's what happened on February 8th. But then I wonder why they haven't put it back. My distributor has asked, numerous people in the media have, have asked. There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal by Jason Riley, and the Wall Street Journal asked. So why not put it back? I mean, even if there was a good explanation, um, I don't, I can't understand it. Why are they not even requesting DVDs, which they're supposed to be selling? So I don't know. I mean, they have said nothing to me. I, I think it is too bad. People can still see the film if they go to our website manifoldproductions.com and look up the film, you can see where it is streaming and it's streaming in a bunch of places, including YouTube and iTunes. And you could buy DVDs from the website, although we're way backed up since Amazon isn't selling it. Um, I hope, by the way, that people, I hope you contact salemnow.com and get it over there. I have not seen it, but I did interview Clarence Thomas when the Justice's autobiography came out. I am my grandfather's son which I think is one of the most moving autobiographies I've read. I spent two hours talking to him about it. He has that wonderful mellifluous voice. You must have been mm. seduced by the voice, Michael, right? Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I thought he was. it would be great to hand over the film more or less to him to tell his stories. He has a great voice, and he is a great storyteller, as you know, from having had that long interview. And he has a really powerful life story. I mean, on, on, on many, many levels. I mean, on the simplest level, as you know, he grew up in the segregated South. I mean, he was born in Pinpoint, a Gullah-speaking area on the coast. Then his mother moved him to Savannah, where he experienced real poverty, not enough to eat, cold in the winter. She would bring him to school, and he'd just leave school and wander the streets. You know, real poverty, and it was and real segregation. The Ku Klux Klan was still marching in Savannah every year in those days. So he, he went from that to the Supreme Court. It's a great American story, a Horatio Alger story, with lots of twists and turns. I mean, he was finally, his mother brought him to his grandfather to, to raise, as, as you could tell from the title of that book. And he, he had really solid values, biblical values, as he put it. And he taught Clarence Thomas the value of hard work and going to school. He insisted that he go every day to a Catholic school. His grandfather was Catholic, an unusual thing for an African-American in those years. And the nuns too gave him these, these core values. And then he rejected those values in the city. He, he was going to be a priest. He studied for the priesthood. He was in a seminary. And, and after experiencing racism in the seminary and, the, and the, what it was like in the 60s, he became a radical. He was a supporter of the Panthers. And so then it's a journey back from that. So it's a complicated and powerful life story.
And his stories at Holy Cross and Yale are fixed in my memory, but mostly his grandfather is fixed in my memory because he helped deliver with his grandfather in an unheated truck every morning at the same time. That's it right. is genuinely an inspiring story. But the left can't let that story be told because it's counter the narrative, right? And so, Michael Pack, what what do you expect will happen in this culture war? We got about eight minutes left. I, I want to know where you think it's going, and I want to know what you're going to do next, besides working to put uh, Justice Thomas's film back on Amazon, which I hope they're listening. I hope Jeff Bezos is listening because it makes no economic sense. There's controversy; they'll sell more of it. But why, where do you think we're going with this culture war? What are you going to do with it? I have never been more concerned about anything than this culture war, and especially this sort of cancel culture. The assault on me, the attempt to sort of erase me and make it impossible for me to work, and these court cases against me, and this vast amount of press, and, and now even canceling Justice Thomas. I, I think we're going into a really scary moment. I mean, one thing I'm doing is starting a, a free speech foundation to defend people who have been canceled. Uh, I'm going back to producing documentaries and, and feature films that tell the true story of America. Uh, I, I feel strongly that we are not telling America's story, not to the world and not even to ourselves. That has always been part of my goal through my films and through, through Manifold Productions. I, I'm, my wife and I are partners in this company and that has always been our goal, but it's, it's more important now than ever. We need to explain America and American principles, especially to our youth, but to the world as well. I mean, what America stands for and why it is a noble principle place and why people should sort of come here and, and if not, try to um, uh, understand those principles and apply them where they are. I mean, it's very important to do. I'm gonna do it through the production of content, but I wanna really do more to, to sort of win this fight. I mean. I feel strongly, Hugh, that I've been engaged in this for my entire career, and we are losing, and it gets worse. And we are even losing. though there are uh, many great books and many conferences and even good films, we are not winning. And no, we're too losing. Much is we're losing, and and we lose because eighty percent of the uh, territory is occupied by our adversary, not our enemy, our adversary. Uh, a couple of very quick exit questions. Uh, I'm sure Bruce Hershenson was your friend. He was my friend, and Bruce used to talk about how VOA made such a difference. And we need that back as well. Not only do we have to win the war for freedom in the United States, by that I mean we have to return to being a liberty people. We do have to worry about the CCP. They are, they never rest, they never stop. They are always abroad, they are always penetrating and we need an active global presence. But we also need to talk about how to win. I am curious, my one suggestion, have you ever made a film about Rush? No, I haven't. I think that's a good suggestion. I mean, this is obviously the time. It is. Uh, and I think I never met him, by the way. I'm not his friend. I only talked to him on the phone and emailed with him. I'm not his friend, but I believe he stood for a particular sort of voice. And his doggedness is really what the right needs right now. This, the, it's the doggedness of Hillsdale. It's the doggedness of Rush Limbaugh. And I think his legacy is being distorted because of bad media and it mm. would take a narrative film to actually tell it the right way. I think that's a good point. I mean, he and, and Hillsdale are, are one of the few examples of victories of ours in the culture war. And in Russia's case, when he started, it was really hard. People don't remember that, but he was a lone voice for a while. And I think you're right. You know, the left, in, even in his obituaries, the left chooses to air every single controversy about him. I have a friend who likes to point out 
that obituaries of uh, conservatives always mention their controversies as well as their achievements, whereas obituaries of people, progressive people, ignore all their controversies and anything scandal that might have um, once been attached to them as you know not in good, you know not cor correct, you know. Not not polite. At the That's a terrific film in and of itself. If you just compared New York Times obits of lefties and righties, you know, you, right. you, you could just just read them and do archival <laughs> footage. But you're good at what you're which one are you working on right now, Michael Pack? And how do people get in touch with you if they're interested in your work? Well, I they can go to our website, which is manifoldproductions.com, M-A-N-I-F-O-L-D productions with an S dot com. All our films there are listed and there's a way to contact us through the website. And, you know, I'm working on a variety of films. I'm considering doing a film on what it was like to work in the Trump administration. We have a, a narrative film about Teddy Roosevelt's years out west, you know, oh. where he became a populist and under, learned to understand America. And, you know, we have a film on Thomas Jefferson that we're working on. So we have several things in development. Um, and I think there's a lot out there that can be done. Um, and I, I think I, I think, you know, there are many, many films that need to be made. Well, we'll put this out there. We'll help you do that. And Michael, last, very last question. Why aren't you on Twitter? <laughs> I don't know. I should be on Twitter. Uh, the Clarence Thomas film itself has a Twitter feed. Um, but I haven't been treated all that well on Twitter, but I think I should probably get back. I think, are you, are you making that as a positive suggestion to you? I am, because I think that a lot of media find people that way, and a lot of uh, interview requests are done that. We were reconnected by our mutual friend, the scratch golfer, Dick Hauser, and I want to make sure that everyone <laughs> understands that uh, that you're out there and you're working and that you can be support. And you need to raise money sometimes to do films that are not necessarily popular Although I think investors would flock to a Michael Pack film on Rush Limbaugh. We will see. <laughs> Michael, good to talk with you. Continued success. Thanks for your service on behalf of the cause, because it really, it would have been easier to say, no, thank you. I've got other things to do. And yet you took the charge. And I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Hugh. I, I appreciate your saying that. And it is very true. Yeah. It's a lot easier not to walk into the middle of a scrum. But you did. So Godspeed and we'll stay in touch. Thanks, Michael Pack. Thank you very much.